Uh, this morning, we are back in uh, Genesis, but before we dive in, uh, I want to just take a moment to recognize, I think many of us, as I said, are still just having a, a, a kind of tough time um, with this seemingly indefinite continuation of um, the coronavirus, and so we discussed at our elders' meeting uh, last week a possible temporary um, change away from our current sermon series in Genesis. Genesis is awesome. Uh, I've been loving it. I know many of y'all have shared with me that you have been loving it so far, uh, but it's also heavy. Um, sermons like the, the Sin of Sodom and even this morning's that we're going to hear. I know some of us right now feel like we can just use all the, the hope and encouragement that we can find, and so uh, I feel that myself some days, and so I want to be responsive to that feedback, and I want to be responsive to where feel like God is leading us right now. So after uh, prayer and some discussion with, um, with others, uh, more discussion, uh, we've decided I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a, a, just a short break midway through the Genesis series here in a couple weeks uh, after chapter 22. It's kind of a nice natural break in uh, the text anyway and as the story transitions from Abraham to his descendants to Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and and so we're going to come back and finish uh, Genesis, God willing. We have to say, if the Lord wills these days, if, if any of us are still here in 2021, uh, we will we'll come back to Genesis. But beginning in August, uh, I'm excited to, to introduce and launch a new series entitled Psalms of Hope. We need hope right now. And so I hope that you'll plan to join us for that. Uh, invite your friends uh, who you think could use some extra hope in their lives, whether they're believers or not, churched or unchurched. Interesting thing is church, church surveys right now show that with all the virtual options these days, as many as one-third of Christians are attending more than one church service per week. And so uh, we would be blessed just to give even other believers in your life that are at other churches uh, just some more encouragement to get them through this season. So invite them for that. But these next three weeks, we're going to stay in Genesis. And this morning, I want to begin by inviting you to imagine with me a very hypothetical scenario, I assure you. Um, let's just say, hypothetically, a, a mom or dad or grandmother, grandfather calls her son or daughter. And, and here's their conversation. See if this resonates with you. Hey, Han, uh, your sister told me, you posted some cute new pictures of my grandbabies, but I was having trouble logging on to see them. I was hoping you could help me. Sure, Mom, what's it saying? Well, when I try and go on the Internet, it says, this version of Google Chrome is only compatible with Mac 0S version 10 period 15 or later. Any idea what that means? <laughs> yes, yeah, so you must have just downloaded an updated version of Google Chrome, right? What's a Google Chrome? Okay, never mind, you just need to go to the App Store and update your operating system. What's the App Store? Okay, just hold down the Command key and tap the space bar. The what key? The Command key, it's the one with the weird symbol of like the square with the rounded corners on it. It's on the bottom row of your keyboard. I don't see it. No, don't see it. Mom, it literally says the word Command on it. Ah, okay, there it is. Okay, so I'm pressing Command. And now I'm pressing the space bar. Yeah, and when it brings up the spotlight search bar, just search for the app store. The what bar? Just, just let me know when you have the option to search. Nothing's happening. I click command, then I click the space bar, nothing's happening. 
No, no, no. You have to hold command while you click the space bar. Ugh, we'll forget it. This is too much trouble. Can you just print off the pictures of the kids and send them to me in the mail? Anyone relate to a scene like that? Just me. Some of y'all might have to send this sermon to your kids and grandkids so they can share a laugh at your expense if you resonate with that, except you won't know how to share it with them because you still don't know how to subscribe to the West Hills podcast. You literally touch the podcast app on your phone, search for West Hills Church, click subscribe, say, what's the podcast app? You know what? Just burn them a CD, mail it to them, fax them an 8-track. Some of y'all are still trying to send telegraphs. Uh, we're, very, we're very intergenerational here at West Hills, and we love that. Uh, what's the principle, though, that I'm trying to get at? The moral of the story is, as the saying goes, sometimes you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? Or can you? That's the question for us this morning. Judging from Genesis chapters 19 and 20 alone, I think we'd have to conclude, no, you can't. This morning, we're going to read the continuation of the stories of both Lot and Abraham, and both stories appear to confirm that age-old adage that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Specifically, we're going to see them both falling right back into their old habits of sin from the past. You'll remember when we left off last week in chapter 19, God's terrifying annihilation of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham witnessed it. Lot escaped it barely. And so both should have God's emphatic warning against sin indelibly seared in their consciences and yet immediately in the aftermath we get these two stories from chapters 19 and 20 in which both Lot and Abraham act in the words of Proverbs 26 11, like a dog that returns to his vomit like a fool who repeats his folly and this morning as always we need to read ourselves into this text and recognize that we are Lot and Abraham. We are the fools. We are the old dogs who return to our vomit. And yet, if you hang with me all the way to the end again, I promise that God's word has hope for us, even for old dogs like you and me, okay? But let's begin by reading the stories together. Would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's word from Genesis chapters 19, verse 30, all the way to the end of chapter 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, Lot went out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. And so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. The firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with them, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. The firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine again tonight. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. The younger also arose and lay with them. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn 
bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He's the father of the Ammonites to this day. Chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. He sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man, because the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. And so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself say he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart, and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return to the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men, the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants, and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver as a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed up the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning for your word. Father, we thank you for the beautiful, glorious gospel truths that we sang this morning that you have the power to change leopard spots, to melt hearts of stone. God, we pray that by the power of your word, the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, you might do just that. For someone who feels stuck in old patterns of sin, whether they are already a believer in you, or they have never yet made that first step of faith and responding to you, God, would you call and draw a sinner's heart to yourself this morning? For your glory, we pray this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I have three <clears throat> main points for you this morning. 
Point number one is that the sin in the world is not as dangerous as the sin in you. The sin in the world is not as dangerous as the sin in you. They say the first step is admitting that you have a problem, but both Lot and Abraham start with a misdiagnosis of their real problem. At first glance, we might be tempted to applaud them for their awareness of and their concern for the threat posed to them by this external sin. After Sodom, we hear, now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. This is the same Lot who last week, despite Sodom's imminent destruction, had gotten so attached to his worldly lifestyle in the city that he lingered, and the angels of the Lord, you remember, had to literally drag him kicking and screaming out of town, at which time they instructed him uh, to escape to the hills, and even then, Lot protested, demanding that they let him flee instead to Zor, the little city nearby, because he couldn't bring himself, even under threat of death, to part with the comforts and temptations of city living. And so when we read just a few verses later here that Lot has now decided to leave Zor and head to the hills after all, we are inclined to commend him. Has Lot finally repented and turned from his worldly ways, finally renounced ungodliness and worldly passions, Titus 2.12. Perhaps Lot's fear in verse 30 of staying in Zor is born out of a recognition that even a little city, characterized by a little ungodliness, deserves the exact same fate as Sodom. And so Lot wants to get out of Dodge before the Zorites get what's coming to them as well. But that interpretation of the text overlooks one crucial detail from last week's story. Remember, the angels had assured Lot in verse 21, Behold, I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. And so Lot's worry here demonstrates not his newfound pursuit of godliness, but rather his faithless failure to trust in the promises of God. Similarly, Let's skip ahead to Abraham in chapter 20. Abraham tells us plainly in verse 11 why he lied to King Abimelech. He says, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. Gerar was in the territory of the Philistines, you know, like Goliath, like uh, Israel's greatest enemies for hundreds of years from the period of the judges all the way to the early monarchy. Isn't Abraham right then to be afraid of this people's lack of fear? For Yahweh? The simple answer is no, he's not. I mean, the, the, the facts, the details of the story itself attest to that. Verses 3 through 10 prove that his fear was an unfair misdiagnosis of these early Philistines. The irony of chapter 20 is that Abraham, God's chosen man, has to be reproved and morally instructed by Abimelech, this uncircumcised pagan. In fact, God's own diagnosis of Abimelech in verse 6 is that he is a man with integrity of heart. And God hasn't even said that much of Abraham to this point in the story. God didn't choose Abraham because of his impeccable character. Once again here, Abraham's fear triumphs over his faith. What both Lot and Abraham should have been afraid of was not the sin in Zor, was not the sin in Gerar, but the sin in 
in their own hearts. Lot and Abraham were both too busy finding specks in the eyes of the Zorites and the Philistines to notice the logs clouding their own vision. And friends, if you and I, in our own tendency towards hypocrisy, judge Lot and Abraham, and we fail to see ourselves as really no different from them, then we'll just confirm the story's very point. Right? That we've all got plenty of sin to worry about in here without even beginning to worry about the sin out there. The greatest threat to believers individually and the church collectively today is not the sin in the world, it's the sin in us. I am absolutely convinced that one of the most subtle and yet diabolical and destructive ways that Satan wants to use this current cultural moment that we're in to blind and deceive many people is by convincing people that the real problem is COVID-19. The real problem, the biggest threat today is systemic racism or the anarchy that has been proposed and perpetuated as a response to it. Don't mishear me. Those are all dangers. Those are all real threats that we need to take seriously as God's new chosen people who have been called to be light and salt, to expose darkness, to preserve righteousness, to stem the decay and the corruption around us in this world that God so loves. And yet, brothers and sisters, we cannot forget in the midst of that that the sin out there is never as dangerous to us as the sin in here. Let me just give you two practical, biblical reasons why that is the case. Number one, because you do not have the power to change anyone else's sin. James 1.20 says, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, me getting angry about their sin has no power to produce the righteousness of God and anyone else, to free someone from that sin. And secondly, on Judgment Day, you and I will not answer for anyone else's sin. Ezekiel 18.20 says, A son will not be punished for his father's sins, and a father will not be punished for his son's sins. The righteousness of the righteous person will be his own. The wickedness of the wicked person will be his own. And so, when you stand before the Lord, you're not answering for my sin, for her sin, for his sin, for their sin. You answer for your own. So there's, there's a real practical calling here to stay in your lane. Worry about yourself. Trust me, you've got plenty to worry about. God knows I do. Now, that makes it all the more remarkable then that God really does call us in the New Testament to be concerned with the sins of fellow brothers and sisters in the church. He says in Matthew 18, confront a believer who sins against you. 1 Corinthians 5, kick evil people out of the church because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Why is that the case? It's because Christ has unified us. He's made us one body to such a degree that if one member of the body suffers, 1 Corinthians 12, the whole body suffers. That's how tight-knit the church is designed to be. Your sin is supposed to affect me, your pastor, and just your brother in Christ personally. And yet, as a collective body, we still ought to be more concerned with the sin in the church, in us, than the sin in the world because we should expect it from the world, right? They, they don't know any better. But we have been called. We have been set apart, called to be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. And even though our sin 
no longer poses an eternal threat to us. If you are truly a believer, you cannot lose your salvation. I'm not undermining the doctrine of eternal security this morning, but man, you can sure make shipwreck of your faith. You really can by ignoring sin. And a true believer will desire to live a life that is pleasing to her heavenly Father because she wants to hear, well done and good, good and faithful servant. She does not want to just squeeze into heaven by the skin of her teeth. A true follower of Christ will not ask, what's the bare minimum that I can do to, to make the cut? He will instead, Colossians 3, 5, put to death what is earthly in him. He will, 2 Timothy 2.21, cleanse himself from what is dishonorable to be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master, ready for every good work. That's the kind of life we want to live. Point number two. The problem is, stress will either drive you to God or back to old coping mechanisms. In times of fear, anxiety, stress, you will either draw close to God or you will go back to old coping mechanisms. Where do the stresses of life in Zor and life in Gerar drive both Lot and Abraham here? Notice that these are not new sins for them. How does each respond to his fear? Lot reaches for the bottle and Abraham resorts back to deception. Even if Lot was genuinely fleeing from wickedness, it's not long before he succumbs again to the worldliness that he has become all too familiar with after years and years of living in Sodom. All it takes is the slightest little prodding from his daughters and Lot is back on the sauce. Which exposes another of his character flaws that we see cropping back up here in chapter 19, his acquiescence. Back in Sodom, Lot should have stood up to the sin all around him. Long before he finally decided to in chapter 19, but by then it was too late. Instead, he became a prominent man among the Sodomites. We hear he, he sat at their city gates. That was a sign of being a, a well-thought-of, respected man in that society by acquiescing, by just going with the flow. And as Edmund Burke famously said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. So even though 2 Peter 2 identifies Lot as a righteous man, he certainly did nothing to oppose the sin all around him. Not in Sodom, not in his own daughter's hearts. Yes, I know that the text specifies here that Lot did not know when his daughters lay down or when they arose. But without getting too detailed, the anatomical fact is that unconscious men cannot perform and do what Lot does here, okay? And so his sin of getting blackout drunk to the point that he can't even remember it in the morning does not excuse him. Lot was at least a passive participant in this incestuous iniquity. And speaking of passivity... Let's turn now to Abraham. Remember how passive Abraham had become back in chapter 16 when Sarai hatched the plan to have him sleep with Hagar. That's when, and then when she regretted her plan and started abusing his new wife, Hagar, Abraham just kind of steps back. And side note, 
That's us too, right? When stress comes, we either turn into a Sarai, and we try and overexert our will, leaving God totally out of the picture, or we'll turn into an Abram, and we shut down, and we shirk back from our God-given responsibility to step up and act. We'll become one or the other. And now we're back in chapter 20, and here's Abraham, new name, same old dog, same old vomit, resorting back to passivity and blame-shifting once again. Look at how he answers Abimelech's question in verse 10, why did you deceive me? In verse 11, Abraham replies, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Verse 12, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, uh, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. It's a new detail of the story. They were related. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Abraham essentially points his finger at everyone else but himself. In verse 11, it's the Philistines. Hey, it was your godlessness that drove me to fear and deception. Verse 12, he blames Abimelech for misunderstanding the truth. He says, look, technically she is my sister, and so you need to get your facts straight, king. And then he blames Sarah in verse 13. This is the kindness you must do for me at every place to which we come. That way, technically, you'll be the one lying, and I can just be passive and stay neutral. And he even goes so far as to subtly blame God in verse 13. He says, when God caused me to wander from my father's house. It's like, hey, I, I never would have even had to lie if God had just left me alone back in Ur. But now God's got me sojourning all over you know, the Middle East, these godless places, dangerous. He's left me with no other option. There's an interesting textual note here. Abraham actually uses the plural form of the Hebrew word for God in verse 13, and so the text should actually read, when the gods caused me to wander. Some commentators think that's just a manuscript error. I think that Abraham has resorted so far back to his old ways here that he unconsciously slips back into his own old polytheistic paganism. And our past sure does have a way of following us, doesn't it? Lot chose to raise his daughters in the sinful city of Sodom, a godless environment. Can Lot really be surprised then by their actions in this dark cave? When weeks prior you were ready to sacrifice and exploit your own virgin daughters in order to appease a gang of rapists, can you really be shocked when now they ironically use their sexuality to exploit you, their father? What goes around comes around, right? The past will catch up to you. These are the kinds of kids that parents like Lot raise and deserve. Abraham can't outrun his past either. Apparently he hasn't even been trying to. He confesses in verse 13 that he and Sarah made this pact decades ago when they first left Ur. And they've been pulling this exact same stunt for 25 years now, almost verbatim back in chapter 12. We heard when they lied to Pharaoh in Egypt, same stunt. He hasn't changed a bit. Without meaning to, Abraham admits in verse 11 where he goes wrong. He confesses, I did it. I deceived you, King Abimelech, because I thought. See, that's the problem. He started thinking. When did God ever call Abraham to think? 
He hadn't. God called him to obey. Called him to walk by faith. You know, friends, you can get yourself in a whole lot of trouble by thinking. 1 Corinthians 3.20, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Isaiah 55.8, my thoughts are not your thoughts, declares the Lord. We are never commanded, really, in Scripture to think. We're called to trust God, to pray, to listen for his voice, to study his word. He is trustworthy. Your mind is not. The mind is a dangerous thing indeed. Where do you go in times of stress? Do you default back to old, unhealthy, coping mechanisms that might have served a purpose in your life before Christ, but they have no place in your life now that you've come to him? Go back to old habits to self-medicate, to self-soothe. You go back to the bottle, back to social media and binge-watching to try and numb, back to passivity, back to that abusive relationship, back to distrust and isolation from people, back to people-pleasing, back to anger, back to fear, back to shame, back to porn, back to workaholism, back to perfectionism, back to being a control freak, back to your old habits of sin, or do you let it drive you to the only one who has the power to change old dogs? The only one who really can change the leopard's spots because he gave them the spots in the first place. The one who says, behold, I am making all things new, and he has the pr proven track record to back it up. The one who says, if anyone is in Christ, as we said this morning, our assurance of pardon, if anyone was in, in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. See, that's the thing. We can all relate to the Apostle Paul's frustration with himself in Romans chapter 7. Can't we? Paul has just gotten finished unpacking the glorious good news of the gospel in chapters 1 through 6 of the freedom from sin that we have now because of what Christ has done for us. But then he pauses in chapter 7 almost as if he's, he's pausing just long enough to look in the mirror again and realize, but sometimes I don't feel like I've changed a bit. And he says, chapter 7, I, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate is what I do. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. When you got saved by Jesus, he freed you from the penalty of sin, but not yet the presence of all sin. That is the process of sanctification. It's a lifelong pursuit. You will be freed one day. But today is not that day. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're coming here this morning, you're tuning in, and you are fighting feelings of hopelessness and despair because you feel like that same old dog that you've always been. 
you're reflecting back on this past week when Scott invited us to confess our sins to the Lord this morning and you're realizing you're still having the same old fights with your spouse. You're still battling the same old issues with your kids. The same old sin struggles with yourself. Like Paul, you're battling your own flesh. That's the fight. And honestly, much of the time you might feel like sin is winning the battles. So you say with Paul in Romans 7, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I want to please God. And yet I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So what's the solution? Where's our hope? Just when it looks like Paul's on the brink of total despair, he gives it to us. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that is point number three, friends. Redemption comes not through our effort, but by God's involvement. Not by your effort, by, but by God's involvement. There are two big differences between Lot's story in chapter 19 and Abraham's in chapter 20. We've been comparing them, but now let's contrast them here at the conclusion. Their stories have, number one, different endings because they have, number two, different main characters. Lot is the main character of his own story. God is not mentioned once in chapter 19 at the end, that section we read. Lot takes matters into his own hands. He decides to move his family back to the hills, and the rest is history. Literally, this short episode serves as an origin story, verses 37 and 38, for both the Moabites and the Ammonites, two of Israel's greatest enemies for the rest of Old Testament history. And this is the last we hear of Lot in the whole Old Testament. That's where his story ends. Those who go it alone without God will be forgotten. But, but God is the protagonist of chapter 20. And those two words, but God, are the most important words in all of chapter 20. Indeed, they are two of the most important words in the Bible. Genesis 50, Joseph and his brothers, and they're afraid he's going to get revenge. He says, what? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, used it for good, redeemed it for good. Ephesians 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins when you once walked, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. And just look at how actively God gets involved here in Abraham's story in chapter 20. God comes to Abimelech in a dream, verse 3. He warns and instructs Abimelech in verse 7. Judging from Abimelech's illness in verse 17, I think we are to assume that God afflicted Abimelech with some kind of disease that actually prevented him from going in and committing adultery with Sarah. That's what God is referring to in verse 6 when he says, it is I who have kept you from sinning against me. Keep that in mind when you go through suffering in this life. 
Who knows how God might be using that suffering to keep you, prevent you back from committing some sin you otherwise would have gotten into? And how does Abraham's story end? Not only does God bring redemption out of it, God actually uses this encounter to bless and establish Abraham in the promised land. But verse 17, he goes beyond that. God, despite all of Abraham's faithlessness, still uses Abraham as the means of blessing and healing Abimelech and the Philistines. Why? Why does God do that? Why does God use crooked sticks to draw straight lines? Why doesn't God just go choose someone else who's more worthy of the calling? Remember, Abraham was not chosen on the basis of his own merit. God does it, friends. He chooses the Abrahams and the Wills and the Missies, the Jareds. He chooses people like us because God gets glory from proving that his strength is greater than your weakness. Listen, We've all heard stories of the, the drunk who gets saved and never desires another drop of alcohol again. The very thought of smell of alcohol makes him sick to his stomach. If that is your testimony, praise God. He certainly has the power to redeem us in that kind of a 180-degree life transformation way God can and does do that. But for many of the rest of us, like Lot, like Abraham, our story is much more like what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 12. When he says, to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So I just want to end there this morning for all the other old dogs like me and like Paul and like Abraham who do still struggle and battle and fight those same old temptations to sin, to go back to your vomit. Let me just end by reminding you of that, that that same power of Christ that saved you last year, years ago, whenever you were saved, that made you alive together with Christ while you were previously dead in your trespasses, that same saving power of Christ now lives in you to prove that his sanctifying power, his grace is sufficient for you to sustain you and to continue to perfect you little by little until that glorious day when you will be freed not just from the penalty of sin but from the presence of sin too. 
in paradise. The question for you and me this morning is, until that day, will we, in times of stress, in times of fear and anxiety,